So is that working okay, the sound? Okay, good. So tonight I uh, mainly want to speak about mindfulness, seems appropriate, and and just mostly talking about recognizing it and pointing to how it can be such a powerful tool in service of clear seeing, in service of awakening. I hope so. That's what I hope I talk about. Um, One definition of Vipassana meditation that I often use and like very much is that meditation, Vipassana meditation, insight meditation, is experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with the right understanding. And those are three aspects that I think go together. The mindfulness part experiencing the mind and body directly with the right understanding from moment to moment is the continuity, the steadiness, the perseverance, which is also essential in terms of practice. But I want to start talking about experiencing the mind and body directly with the right understanding. That's really key. It... um, Our tendency can be, often is, to talk about or think about meditation as beginning from learning a technique, you know, and doing it right. And if we get it right, the understanding will come. And it's true, of course, that the more we practice and the more steady our mindfulness gets, that's actually um, a condition that allows for wisdom to arise. So, of course, right understanding deepens kind of endlessly as we go through our practice and our life. But to think about that we just do the technique and it doesn't matter what quality of understanding is in the mind that's paying attention is um, a, a piece of ignorance. It's a mistake. Because what makes it samasati, sati the word for mindfulness, and I'll be using mindfulness and awareness I'll be using right mindfulness and awareness um, as meaning the same thing in this talk. So sati means mindfulness. Samasati is right mindfulness or the path factor of the Eightfold Path, the path factor of right mindfulness. So if there's samasati, the Buddha also talks about in a few suttas, michasati or wrong mindfulness. So it's not that if you experience the mind and body directly any old way, it's mindfulness. So what does that mean, just very, very simply wrong mindfulness, is when um, you could be experiencing the mind and body directly, but the motivation could be quite unwholesome. So say, example, a thief is extremely careful, aware of the body and the mind to sneak into a house and, be quite, and do all those things to steal something. But that's, you could say that's sati in terms of experiencing the mind and body directly, but it's not samasati. It's not path mindfulness. It's not understanding, right? So that's a very simple way of describing it. So the right understanding basically, and I'll talk quite a bit about that, is when the moment of experiencing the mind and body directly is not distorted, unrecognized by greed, by hatred, aversion, or by delusion. So in the moment of of samasati, right mindfulness, just experiencing sensation or sound or sight or thought, just as it is. So that's, we all know that. We've all been practicing a long time. We know what mindfulness is. But I just want to point out a bit about um, practicing, really bringing in from the beginning a sense of the right understanding. Just the beginning right understanding. Don't have to wait till the end of the path. Right understanding is 
um, a translation often called right view. And I love, which is also a path factor, the first of the Eightfold Path, the first step, right view, wise understanding. I like the translation right view because for me, I find it to be quite literal. The way the mind is viewing experience is what gives rise to how we think about things, to how we respond, to how we understand. And when the Buddha was talking about um, what frees our hearts and minds, what is the liberating wisdom, it's not something that doesn't exist now. It's not that somehow we move to another plane of existence where everything's all love and light and wonderful. You know that, right? We're not going there because it's not there. But it's not that. But it's like suddenly the scales, the distortions drop, even if just for a moment, and the mind recognizes things accurately. To me, it's so far out. Liberation from, from clinging, from confusion, arises naturally from accurate recognition of things as they have come to be in this moment not from making things in this moment different. And this accurate recognition isn't something we can create with an act of will, but we can start to get interested in also seeing how the inaccurate, is that a right word? How the inaccurate recognition comes to be. Mingyur Rinpoche, the Tibetan, Tibetan teacher says, if we want to be happy, We must figure out which causes and conditions lead to well-being. Similarly, if we do not have a clear understanding of the conditions that create suffering, how could we possibly expect to free ourselves from it? So our steady mindfulness practice is we're going to be spending all this time recognizing both to really see, as the Buddha said, everything he taught us, as far as I can understand, is not about taking on board a new intellectual philosophy. Even though there are 20 volumes, in all of those 20 volumes, it's not about one should memorize it, although one can. You know, there are, in Burma still, they call them Tipitaka Sayadaws. Sayadaw means teachers. There's a few still alive in Burma who have memorized the complete Tipitaka, all 20 volumes, which is back like in the days of the Buddha. They're quite revered in Burma. So that one could do that, and you, know, you get a lot of wisdom that way, but that's not why the Buddha was teaching. It's so that we really recognize that suffering arises in a moment as conditions come together in our own mind and heart stream. Freedom from suffering arises in this moment when those conditions are seen through with right understanding, with wisdom. Mindfulness, samasati, right mindfulness, not distorted by greed, hatred, confusion, is the tool that allows for clear seeing. So just a few examples, two two different examples that I like, to give a sense of how natural it is when we see clearly the confusions drop away. One very simple one. Um, if, you watch, if you watch young children learning, I have a new nephew. He's about two and a half. So it's been fun uh, visiting. He doesn't live around here, but visiting him. And each time I go, you know, you see a new stage of learning. So very simple when he's around two. You know, when, when they're playing with, like, say, wooden blocks. So you have a, like a big... Um, kind of wooden thing with different shapes like a triangle and a circle and a square and the kid has the blocks in those shapes and you try to put the block in the same shape, right? Like kind of to us it's obvious but to someone who doesn't know that you keep trying to put the triangle into the circle it doesn't work you put the square into the triangle it doesn't work you throw the blocks all over the place you scream, you yell, you get upset, right? Because that's what happens you don't understand And so the not understanding leads to frustration, 
impatience. You blame the blocks. Or if you're older, you blame yourself. Why am I so stupid? Why can't I do it? I see my mother do it. She just goes boom, boom, boom. It works for her. Why not for me? What, I mean, of course, a two-year-old is not thinking like that. They're just throwing it around. But that's an expression of the frustration. But then they keep doing it. And it's just a natural function of the mind-body process getting older, suddenly, you know, we say the penny drops in English. And he goes, oh, right, triangle goes in triangle. That's how it works. Go in circle, it doesn't work. He kind of just suddenly sees how they go together. And then in that moment, that's like a moment of insight, recognizing the way it works. That's all. All the frustration, the self-blame, the other blame, the throwing the blocks, it just drops away because it doesn't make sense anymore. You don't have to decide to abandon the frustration because, oh yeah, the triangle goes in the triangle, the circle goes in the circle. Oh, so simple. It's like that. It's a law of nature. So you get a sense. It's like that we stop fighting gravity. You know, if you want to really suffer, go out and keep trying to fly. Fight gravity, get upset, you know, but we don't do that, I hope. hope you're not doing that. And so it's laws of nature. So you get a sense of what I mean. So in terms of the right understanding, that we simply begin our practice with not the end point, of course. We can just begin to look and see what is it that hides or blocks for us accurate recognition. Because it's the accurate recognition that allows us to come into harmony with things as they are, the mind and body as it is, the world as it is, the way things work. And from that, we can respond in an appropriate manner. We don't have to throw the block through the window. We can respond in an appropriate manner. But first we have to see clearly. So what blocks for us? So obviously the habits of our mind Even behind that, where do the habits come from? And one, I'm just going to give another example of how the the views, the way that we view the world based uh, to a great extent for all of us on our culture, our upbringing, the environment we grew up in, the environment we live in, all kinds of things. We all have, you know, slightly different or very different worldviews And so I'm just going to give one example of a sense of when we don't recognize that's what's operating, the view in the background of this is how it is, forms, it informs our perceptions, which inform how we think about things and how we explain experience and the world to ourselves. And because, as we said, we we all... None of us has exactly the same background, exactly the same environment, exactly the same experiences. Many of us have widely variant that. But doesn't it feel like the way we view the world, we, we don't have a big neon sign, this is how I view the world, we just say that's how it is. We don't even often have a sense, or it doesn't even occur to us that someone else's experience could be completely different of the same, the same occurrence in a moment. So starting to notice this, it's not that that's going to stop, but we can begin to bring that into awareness and then it doesn't have to distort our perception and we can recognize more accurately. So another simple, another example, I've used this, um, this story frequently, but I like it and it works. So I've um, been spending quite some time in Burma or Myanmar the last 15 years. I've gone there every year for... Uh, one to two months, and the majority of Burma is Buddhist. Certainly not every, there's a lot of other other cultures within that country, but the kind of the central part is Buddhist, and of course I'm going there in meditation centers, monasteries, nunneries, so I'm associating with Buddhist people mostly. So because that's the, um, the cultural background of most people, the sense of the... Um, the way the Buddha talked about the world, like for the example, the Buddhist cosmology of different realms of existence, that's just taken as how it is. So you might notice in the, in the metta chant, 
that we've been doing, there's a place where it says all devas, those are celestial beings, all human beings, all those in lower realms. That's just in, in Burma, fact of that's how the world is, just to say that. So I was there, well, one year, a couple of times this happened. We're taking many photos of different things. And at one point we were on a, with a group of people offering food dana, food donation of, of rice and beans to some villagers after a strong um, hurricane, what they call a cyclone there, where their, the rice paddies and their food had really been destroyed. So, you know, just, just offering and doing a, it's a nice thing offering in, in Burma because the, it's a whole ritual around the offering and the receiving that's really dignified and beautiful on both sides. Anyway, later looking at a friend's camera, one of the friends who'd taken many photos, in some of the photos, it would, they were all over, some of the people were these perfectly, perfectly round, bright light kind of things all over the photos. And um, so as we were looking at it, two friends, one who's a Burmese and one who is Western, but she spent 20 years there as a Burmese nun. They go, oh, that means that's Davis. Those bright lights and photos, that's Davis. I mean, those Davis were there. And then another friend who's also a nun, but she is um, a scientist, has a, a PhD in biology. She goes, don't get to Davis. It's just like the f- way the light's working and in the camera and the way the water and the fraction, you know, the fracking, all this. And I showed it to some friends here and they're, oh no, it's like the, and all the scientific Western explanations. And it's like, who knows, right? So if it was just the camera, I went back and looked in my camera. I'd taken a few photos and they were also there those round things. And then another was some, this really great Sayadaw who's since passed away and there's this beautiful, so I thought, who knows? Who knows if it's Davis? Who knows if it's just a, a quirk of the light in that camera? But to see how the Burmese people, the people really steeped in that culture, there was no question about, they know that's Davis. And the others, there was no question. They know it's some refraction of light in the particular camera. They know it. You know, at least we didn't come to blows about it. We're just like, okay, (laughs) whatever. Can we just be with not knowing? That's the mindfulness place. What do we know? Seeing. The perception is round, bright light. Bas. You don't have to create anything around it. That's the quality of mindfulness. Really present. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. Who knows? Although I will say my, my scientist friend later, sidetrack, but later was, went to um, uh, Tirvanamalai, uh, Ramana Maharshi's ashram, where it's really this sacred mountain. And there is something there. I spent a lot of time there. I was totally surprised. I'm not into sacred mountains or something, but there's something there, I'll tell you. Anyway, on the full moon, it's in India, uh, many Indian pilgrims come to walk around. It's a, a thing you do, a production of walking around the mountain. It's, it's quite some miles. Okay, in India, when many people come, we're talking a million. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> we're talking a lot of people when many people come in India. So it's like just solid people walking around this 12-mile thing at night. So my friend sent me this photo, but I don't, I don't have it on this computer. I can't show you. But it was just these round things all over the place, just everywhere. She said, she wrote me, okay, okay, maybe it's Davis. <laughs> Who knows? But you get the sense that this is what uh, affects how we perceive. And rather than getting into right or wrong, what mindfulness is doing, the steadiness of mindful awareness that, that is bringing us into stepping outside of having to know being caught up in our worldview altogether. Not having to justify or say it's right or wrong and the worldview is going to come up. We recognize it. But the moment of mindfulness is just stepping outside of either, oh yeah, it's like this, seeing, uh, who knows? It's like this now. It's like this now. It's like this now. And when we're not adding the extra liking, disliking, aversion, whatever, it's just what it is. That steadiness, the perseverance, is what allows for wisdom, which is accurate recognition of the mind-body process of things as they have come to be in this moment. 
That's what allows it to arise. I use that language on purpose. The steadiness of this clear mindfulness with right understanding without all the overlay of opinions and liking and disliking allows wisdom to arise. It's not an act of personal will. It's not that if you do it right, you've got to figure out what you need to see and try hard enough and see it. In fact, that's just the opposite of going to help you see what, how things are. But I found that a huge relief. Oh, my job isn't to figure out everything and see it and create wisdom. My job is just, what's happening now? It's like learning to, to almost love the simplicity of mindfulness rather than getting so involved in what I think about each experience and what does it mean and is it good enough or bad enough and what am I doing wrong and what am I doing right and how can this, is this on the right path or is this on the wrong path? Just what's happening now? Ball of light, seeing, finish. What's happening next? I wonder what it is, wondering. Just this moment, just this moment, coming to really... Well, for me, it's almost like loving mindfulness awareness. I was feeling that on the way up here, you know, thinking about this and thinking about it. And it's a, oh, yeah, it's just awareness of what's happening right now. And it, it gets almost um, tangible in some kind of a way, mentally tangible. It's just like this now. And that's so complete in the moment. It's a moment of uh, you're just, just purely present, without needing to push away or include something that's not here or push away what is here, just whatever's here. Maybe it's precise, maybe it's broad, doesn't matter. But the quality of, of um, experiencing the mind and body directly with right understanding is just in a way the sense of total presence. Oh, there was a quotation, I put it later, but now I want to say it now if I can find it from Nyoshul Ken Rinpoche. Oh, he talks about the fresh instant of the present moment. I like that. Just feeling the fresh instant of the present moment. That's all. The what of the present moment is whatever it is, changing every moment. That's not as important as just recognizing, coming into trusting that fresh instant, that quality of Uh, direct experiencing with right understanding. So one of the habits, the views that keeps re-arising for pretty much all of us, and Winnie mentioned it last night, it's one of the the largest um, habits that obstructs accurate recognition is this sense of identity view, the sense of taking any experience in a moment as me or mine. So, of course, that's not going to just go away, but we can begin to recognize how it's arising and functioning in a way that distorts our recognition of experience. So, just in a very light way, in a very light way, you can, can notice how it comes up and through all the day. There's just the six sense experiences are arising and passing pretty much endlessly, right? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensations in the body, physical sensations, and the whole mental realm, thoughts, emotions, moods, mental images, right? That's just what's happening over and over and over and over and over and over again and again, every waking moment. Have you noticed that? Are you waiting for it to stop? But this is what's occurring. Now, mindfulness is just, you know, noticing what's occurring in this moment without adding extra. But in terms of this identity view, you might just very lightly, don't make a big deal about it, but but you might notice how, say you're sitting or you're out walking, there's many sense experiences. A thought comes, it just comes and goes, oh, it's Tuesday today, or there's, there's a sight, there's a sound, you're feeling the sensations of the feet. There's many, many are just coming and going. They may be neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, but no big deal, right? They just come and go. But suddenly there's one that 
somehow the mind privileges as this is me, or this is happening to me, or this is mine. And suddenly the whole experience takes on a different quality. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Any experience of that? And to see then what effect that has. You know, we react. So, so a couple of days ago when it was so hot and muggy, for example, just making this up. So walking, you know, there's, all, there's a sense of heat, there's a sense of hearing, all the different things. And suddenly when it becomes, God, I'm so hot, right? Even that could just be a thought coming, I'm so hot, and it goes. But this is a thought, I'm so hot. And it's kind of privileged as my thought. And then the experience of the heat of the mugginess, oh, that's so unpleasant. That shouldn't be. What can I do about it? So it moves from a sensation and a thought to my thought, my sensation. And then there's the reaction. It's unpleasant. The aversion comes. All kinds of thoughts come about what can I do about it or what's the matter with me. If I was really a good yogi, it wouldn't bother me or whatever way your thought goes. It doesn't really matter which. But when there's that privileging, when it's all about me or mine, that just keeps on going. And instead of just, oh, heat feels like this. It's my heat or that heat or how can it be like this? How am I going to last for six weeks in this kind of heat? And the rooms aren't air conditioned and na, 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 na. And then there's flies and there's mosquitoes. And, you know, pretty much you're like, if I wanted it like this, I could have gone to India. I could have gone to Burma. You need to come to Massachusetts for this kind of weather. You know, it just gets out of control pretty quickly, right? And there's suffering, there's confusion, there's just agitation through clinging, is what the Buddha called it. Agitation through clinging. As a friend of mine was telling me, one of her um, Tibetan teachers described it in a way that I liked very much. I just liked his language. He says, you know, it's just, everything's our thoughts are arising and past, just as I described, all the different sense experiences are coming. There's a sense of our body, but it's, it's all nature. There's nothing personal. It's just all nature. But then suddenly something becomes personal, me or mine. And what had been wide open, all-inclusive, is just nature occurring, suddenly said it gets all solidified into what he called the narrow bandwidth of being a human being, somehow separate from everything else. And I like it, just get this sense of it. Suddenly it solidified me against the humidity you know, or me against that other person who's walking slower and making me feel like I'm a lousy meditator, or whatever the heck it is, you know. Solid. Everything has gotten, and, it dis- and that distorts our perception, you know. It distorts our perception, it leads to more thoughts, it leads to more wanting. We get really seduced and entranced by the mind's reactions to these things. And there's no way when that's going on unrecognized that we see accurately. So when the mugginess is a problem or I'm too weak or I can't be with it or I have a, I have a medical condition, there's no way I can continue and whatever it is, there's no way to recognize accurately, oh, heat feels like this. Sweating feels like this. Aversive feelings in the mind feels like this. It's not that the aversion has to go away, but the flip from the the narrow bandwidth, the solidity, this, this is really how it is. I'm like this, I'm separate, and this is causing me trouble. To, oh, it's just like this now, without adding anything extra. That's when clear seeing, when insight can begin to arise. So this sense, though, of taking it personally, anything, is one of the... Uh, most, well, it's arising a lot in our experience. And for pretty much everybody, whatever our background, whatever culture, whether, you know, I believe in the devas or I don't believe in the devas, but this is what the Buddha was talking about. This sense of taking it personally is one of the biggest wrong understandings that when we don't recognize it's arising, it prevents accurate recognition. It keeps us spinning, spinning, in trying to be happy, but not understanding why we're not happy. Because we're keeping looking in the wrong direction. 
which is, leads to clinging, it leads to aversion. I mean, we'll talk about that more as we go on. Ajahn Sumedho says, we create ourselves through our thoughts and we cannot create an ultimately peaceful self. So take that as a challenge <laughs> because you're probably not going to stop creating yourself with your thoughts. We're not here to stop it, but we're here to bring awareness to it, to bring mindfulness to it. It's not that the reactions stop. It's not that I still don't have the worldview of devas or not devas, but mindfulness can see, oh, this is muggy feeling. This is unpleasant heat. This is aversion. Feels like this. That's the difference. Mindfulness, as Ajahn Sumedha calls it, is the point that includes, it includes anything. That freshness of the present moment is whatever is here. It's like a totality of presence just for a flash. Don't try to extend it in time. All we can do is be fully here for this moment. Makes it more possible in the next moment. But that moment is all-inclusive. This moment is all-inclusive. So that's the power of simple sati. The effect of when we take it personally. And we take a lot of things personally, don't we? So I'm I'm staying with simple examples, but I hope you know that the simple example of, say, the heat and the reactivity, the reaction of aversion, taking it personally, both the heat the unpleasantness, and the aversion. We're taking it all personally when we're caught up in it. The only way to be able to bring mindfulness, to explore the quality of heart and mind, to see what's creating the suffering, the only way to be able to do that in a balanced way is in a moment when we're not taking it personally. And that includes the aversion. That even includes the habit of sense of me. It's just a thought. Nothing is personal. Nothing. It's all just as uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa says, it's all just nature. We are nature. It's all aspects of nature. The aversion arising from the unpleasant feeling of the, the heat that arose from a thought about it, that's just conditioned from habit. The more we react, that, that aversion reacts to unpleasant, it becomes an ingrained habit and it shows up when we're not aware of it. That doesn't mean you are a bad, aversive person. It means that's just aversion doing its job, as Sayadaw Tejaniya says. We want to get interested and see how, what is aversion's job? How does it work? What is fear's job? How does it work? How does wanting show up? And what's the effect when wanting's happening in the mind? So the quality of mindfulness with right understanding isn't to stop things from happening, but it's to get interested in whatever's happening because none of it is personal. And that's what really allows for this quality of, um, I call it affectionate curiosity, that mindfulness can bring to whatever's arising, whatever's arising. Without that, the effect of taking it personally is we really get caught in striving and reactivity, and completely entranced by the habitual reactions of the mind and heart to whatever's occurring. You know, we start or continue in our habit of looking to experience or whatever object of awareness is happening for self-confirmation, for meaning, don't we? Don't you, when you think, when you come in to talk to a teacher, it's so habitual, I mean, I'm not talking about anyone in particular, but you think, What should I tell them? And you want to say the good things, whatever the heck that means to you that day. But the good things really is either it feels good usually or somehow we think it means I'm getting somewhere. Where are we getting? Where are we going to go? There's nowhere but this moment. We think we're getting somewhere, you know? And so it's like we're, we're looking at a particular experience to give us meaning. We come in, I'm so sleepy, I'm so tired, my thoughts are all over. And we're taking that experience to mean I'm a completely useless human being on the face of the earth, you know. I shouldn't even be here. Because why? Because I was sleepy in the 10 o'clock sitting. 
<laughs> right? I mean, if you really question people, I'm sleepy all day, the whole day. And you go, really, the whole day? How about lunch? No, I'm sleepy then. <laughs> well, how about, you know, for, oh, no, that was okay. How about when you were walking? Oh, no, I wasn't sleepy then. When were you sleepy? Well, the sitting after breakfast. Oh, my God. Like, okay. <laughs> You're sleepy, all right. <laughs> Sleepiness is like this, you know. The, the difference between taking it personally and not is the difference between throwing your blocks through the window and just putting the triangle in the triangle. You know, oh yeah, sleepiness is like this. No big whoop. It's a completely different experience. And that's strengthening the habit of mindfulness. You think, oh no, mindfulness is only strengthened when it's really, really, you know, something incredibly good happening or really steady or... No. In fact, I can tell you from personal experience of 35 years, actually 40 years, but I, actually it's more than that. That's really embarrassing. But anyway, (laughs) it took me a long time to trust this because sleepiness, kind of low energy, is one of my uh, hindrances of choice, let's say, one of my good friends, especially on retreat. And it took me ages to see, you know, getting all resistant to it. I'm not going to fall asleep. I'm not going to fall. And somehow thinking that's mindfulness, I'll tell you, that's not mindfulness. That's aversion. Aversion is aversion. Mindfulness of aversion is mindfulness, but aversion masquerading as mindfulness is aversion. (laughs) So if I'm sitting here and I don't fall asleep, what have I really been feeding? What have I been cultivating in that sitting? Aversion and tension, you know? So when I, I suddenly, I finally got that. Okay, sleepiness is like this. Sleepiness is dull. You think, well, it's not mindful. It's not clear. Of course it's not clear because the job of sleepiness is dullness. You're not going to have incredibly clear, you know, awareness when you're sleepy. It's going to be dull. But there's still awareness if you're there with it. And so what I started to really come to trust, you can't, I can't see it happening in the moment. But you know when you go through a period and you're really sleepy, and you didn't just check out in your jammies for the whole day, you did actually keep on trying to sit and walk, you know, to some extent. And suddenly, you're awake again. It will happen. I swear to God it will happen. You will be awake again, probably three in the morning, but you will be awake again. And there's awareness, there's mindfulness. Well, that didn't just drop from the sky with no causes and conditions. Everything's lawful. Because during that period of, you know, dullness is like this. Sleepiness is like this. But that's mindfulness, albeit weak and dull. It's still being cultivated. It's very different. You're feeding the wholesome rather than feeding the unwholesome. By by God, I won't fall asleep. So really looking and seeing what's feeding the wholesome, what's feeding the unwholesome. Feeding the wholesome is what supports our waking up. Nyoshul Kenpo again. He was a wonderful Tibetan Dzogchen master. So he's talking, I'm I'm taking it in context to fit this. But when we're really practicing without a little bit of right understanding. When we're taking it all personally and we don't recognize that, we can practice, this isn't Nyoshul Ken now, we can practice extremely sincerely, putting in huge effort, right? But with this wrong understanding, it's all about me trying to create something. As Ajahn Sumedho said, um, I know I'm jumping around, I'll get back to Kempo. As Ajahn Sumedho said, um, you know, he said, people used to say, don't talk about um, identity view or this sense of creating sense of self in the beginning because it's too complex or so. But he said, why not? Why spend 20 years practicing through delusion, you know, of me trying to get somewhere? Why do that? Let's start seeing accurately in the beginning. So in this way, when we don't see, when we're all coming from the sense of me, when uh, taking it personally, uh, as Nyoshul Kempo says, We exhaust ourselves in three ways. Probably more, but I like this. Three ways. The first is we create fabrications. We create mental concepts. The second is then we exert a lot of effort. And then we create many targets in our minds. 
But can you get a sense when we're taking it personally and it's about me, first we create many concepts. We construct all this stuff, like the example I gave about it being humid and hot. That's all that's happening. From that in 30 seconds or two seconds, we can be into a whole thing about our health and our past and our future and our retreat and what we're going to do and, and all of that. We're creating all these concepts from that sense of identification. Then we create a lot of effort. So the effort may be in the so-called environmental world. How can I get cool? You can be running all around. You're going to be going to L.L. Bean to order one of these fans with a battery that you see at tennis matches and all this stuff. And how, you know, how can I go and hide it so nobody knows what I'm doing? And I can't have it in the hall, so maybe I won't sit in the hall. You can spend days like that, right? About whatever. This is uh, a lot of useless effort based on a lot of concepts and a lot of goal orientation. We're creating a lot of goals. Your goal is to get cool. Well, next week it'll be freezing. And then your goal will be, okay, now I've got to replace the fan with a little heater. I've got to get those gloves that have a battery. And I'm, okay, LLB, and I still, you know, how am I going to do that? But this is our life if we're not seeing what's going on. No wonder we're exhausted. No wonder we're not happy, you know, because everything's always changing. You just, oh, yeah, muggy and hot feels like this. It's like so, so much easier, so much less exhausting. Internal, not just environmentally, but internally, the same thing. You know, whether the mindfulness, I think my mindfulness should be more precise. I think I should be feeling my breath more really precisely. And we set up a, a sense of how it should be, a concept. Then we put in a huge amount of effort. But it's the effort based on wanting, on greed, personal effort. And it's just, you're going to know it eventually because it brings, it brings conflict, it brings tension, it brings frustration. In fact, if you feel frustrated, pretty much for sure, you know, there's some idea in the back of your mind you think should be happening and it's not. Or something is happening that you think shouldn't be. And you think the thing, the frustration, you think it's this thing that isn't or is happening. But the frustration is just the wanting based on this concept in the back of the mind that sets up a goal, that sets up a target, that we're putting in a huge amount of effort to try and make happen. Completely exhausting. Yeah, we do put in a lot of effort, huge energy here, but the effort is that of the steadiness of just remembering mindfulness in this moment. And now in this moment, as soon as we start aiming it to try and make something happen, we're moving into those three ways of exhausting ourselves that Kempo's talking about. So let's not put in a huge sincerity of effort all towards trying to make something happen when really the effort can be into just relaxing back into what's happening right now. In terms of um, what I just mentioned, someone might have the idea that mindfulness should be very precise and really try for that. I think think Joseph mentioned this morning, but mindfulness isn't about a particular technique where sometimes we can get ideas like that. Mindfulness means it's very precise or mindfulness means it's more broad and all-inclusive and settled back, right? This is right mindfulness, or that's right mindfulness. But as I think Joseph mentioned, both of those are fine. It's not about whether it's broad or narrow. Mindfulness is that quality in the citta, in the consciousness, in the mind-heart of this clear recognition in that moment, samasati, free from distortion of greed, hatred, confusion. And that can be very precise or it can be uh, broader, more all-inclusive. In fact, the Buddha even mentioned both ways in a couple of suttas. So I just want to read that so you know it's not just us saying it's whatever, you know. Sometimes people think, oh, we just say whatever. Someone said to me once, whatever I come in and say to you, you're just going to say, just notice it, it's all fine. <laughs> there was some truth in that, but... <laughs> the noticing part is what's important. But anyway, in one sutta, the Buddha is talking about, it's an important sutta, and I'm not going to talk about the rest of it, but he's talking about two types of thought, 
when he was exploring his own mind before he was the Buddha, before he was awakened. And so he said he noticed two types of thought. One type of thought is the thoughts of harmfulness, thoughts of greed, thoughts of ill will. So really the unwholesome, the akusala, the word for unwholesome kinds of thought. And when he really looked at it, he saw that the more he thought about it, the more it led to his own suffering and the suffering of others and tired him out. And then he saw on the other side, uh, you could say wholesome thoughts, thoughts of, of non-greed, thoughts of uh, non-ill will, metta, thoughts of non-harming, compassion. And he, said he saw as much as he thought those thoughts, there was no harm that could come from them to him or another, unless, he's so practical, he thought too much all night and he could tire himself out with thinking too much. He's like totally practical. But anyway, at this point, that's just the context. So he says, whatever a person keeps pursuing, whatever's the habit of your mind, that becomes your inclination. So if we keep thinking about aversion and not recognizing it, not recognizing it, that's the salient thing, it becomes a habit. Anyway, so he says, and he's talking about when he's noticing the habits of harmfulness, of ill will, of greed, and those thoughts. He said, it's just as like in the last month of the rains retreat in India at that time, in the autumn season, when the crops are ripening, a cow herd would closely watch his cows. He would tap and poke, he would curb them, he would make sure that they don't go into the crops that are ripening. Why? because he sees that there would be a fine or public censure or difficulties arising if he let his cows wander into the crops and cause them damage. Just very simple. In the same way, I saw for myself in the unwholesome states, unskillful qualities of mind, I saw drawbacks and um, defilements and suffering. And I saw that in the wholesome states of mind, there are the blessings of renunciation and the aspect of cleansing. And then when he saw the wholesome states, he said, it's just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been gathered into the village, a cowherd would look after his cows while resting under the shade of a tree or out in the open, He simply keeps himself mindful. He simply needs only to be mindful that there are these cows. Very much as Joseph was saying from the Sutta, oh, there is a body. Just has to know there are these cows. And then the Buddha, in the same way, I simply needed to be mindful that these wholesome states are here. Both of those, he says, ways of practice. So when it's wholesome, when the mindfulness is getting its own momentum, just the sense of the more um, broader, settle back under a tree, and just the simple steadiness of mindfulness. These states are here, these states are arising, whatever they are. Yet at other times, and, and he linked the other times to when there's difficult states of mind, we're still aware of them, but the quality that we bring into the mindfulness, it's still relaxed, don't get me wrong. They're both relaxed because we're not trying to change it. But when there's you know, unskillful qualities zooming in, we need to have a little more sense of care, a little more sense of, you know, don't just settle back and go, okay, whatever, because the aversion's like zooming in in the background. Okay, right, aversion's like this. It's still mindfulness. It's still relax. You're not going, oh my God, aversion, I got to be really careful and keep it from coming. It's not that. But it's just being a bit more careful. Both of these, so you might be a bit more, when you, you open and you're more settled back, you're where there's a state, there's hearing, there's seeing, there's thinking, there's wanting, there's bliss, that things are coming and going. And people think, oh, that's, that's really nice. It's all just coming and going. I've got it now. This is balanced mindfulness, you know. And then all of a sudden a memory comes up or someone starts making a heck of a racket or you remember whatever, you know, something comes and all of a sudden, zoom, something has been identified with, something's coming up strong, the whole thing is rocky and you think, but I, it's, it's right that I need to be open and relaxed. And you try to 
think that's right mindfulness. And what happens? You just keep getting carried away, carried away, carried away. So you go, okay, let me be a little more careful. Maybe I specifically come and feel sensations in the body, not to block that stuff, but to reconnect with balanced mindfulness. Mindfulness that's not, you know, distorted by the collation. And then you can recognize the aversion. You need to just be careful enough to keep the mindfulness sharp and steady so that we see it when it comes. Because these habits are so familiar, you know, we don't tend to notice it. Of course I'm aversive to, to humid, muggy weather. Who wouldn't be? That's normal. Don't give me that. You know, we're off. Oh, aversion's like this. Aversion's like this. Sometimes precise, sometimes relaxed. Both are mindfulness. Kempo again. I just, I mean, I've known this sutta for a long time. I was reading this when I was on a re- little self-retreat this fall, and I just, I, I just have to read it because it's so perfect. So Nyosho Ken was a really great Tibetan Dzogchen master, just died um, in, in the end of the last century. He's talking about, it was really a hard life when he was a young monk at age 10 in one of the monasteries in Tibet. He said, at the age of 10, my job was to take care of the sheep that belonged to the monastery, sometimes shepherding the animals out in the wilds. When it was sunny and nice, I would stay outside, very relaxed, feeling happy, just watching the sheep munching the grass, munching, eating the grass. So just like the cowherd, just okay, just aware, like that. But sometimes it was raining and freezing cold with hail and wind, and I was without shelter, and I could not see the sheep who were lost in the mist in the ravines, so I had to chase them everywhere in order to collect them and bring them back at night. I knew exactly how many there were. I recognized each of their faces and called them each by name. I like that, because in a sense, that's the sense of a careful mindfulness. So sometimes in different techniques, don't confuse the technique with that mindfulness is only in a particular technique. So for example, in the way sometimes the so-called Mahasi technique or Upandita would talk, he'd talk about mindfulness as really coming face to face, naming the object, seeing it clearly. It seems to be more object related, very much in the way that Nyoshal Ken was really looking out for recognizing each sheep, able to give its name, seeing it face to face. Sometimes when that's really helpful and skillful. Then there's other times when it's just under a tree, all the things are coming and going, the sheep are munching, you're not focusing in on each one. That's also mindfulness, you know? And so seeing for ourselves, it's not about how it shows up. Both of these are very useful but it's in that quality of just um, experiencing the mind and body directly from moment to moment with right understanding, whether it's precise or whether it's more broad, both of those can be right understanding. The fresh instant of the present moment. So this is the meditation. This is the work of the mind that is knowing. This is really what we're practicing here. And that's where we come to the continuity or perseverance. This is really when we talk about right effort. This is where the effort comes in, not for a goal, but to really completely open into this moment with right understanding, because every moment is Dhamma. Dhamma in the sense of the truth of things, the way things are. As the great Zen master Dogen said, if you cannot discover the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? It's only accessible here, because that's all there is. So this retreat, you know, we're not, it's not about trying to achieve something in six weeks or three months or in any time. It's really practicing, recognizing mindful awareness, recognizing 
right? Understanding, just meeting the mind and body experience as it is. Noticing when we're suffering, how that's arising in the moment, getting really interested in that. Noticing when there's suddenly that aha moment of, oh, I'm holding on to wanting it to be different and it all just falls away. How that arises in a moment. Noticing that mindful awareness can be the thread through all of these. That there's nothing, no experience we have that needs to be outside of mindfulness, outside of awareness. When you notice you're putting something to the side and saying, this has to change so I can practice, that's the place to really get interested. Because awareness doesn't care what's occurring. Everything that arises, as Joseph in, in our day, in our mind, in our body, is uh, a key uh, opportunity to come back into mindfulness, if we've gone out of it, to recognize awareness again. There's nothing that needs to be steady, that needs to be uh, kept away. So Sayadaw's Tejaniya often says, as, as mindfulness is remembered, that's our perseverance, that's our effort, to just remember mindfulness every moment that we can remember it. And in the beginning, it is a personal effort. It's not just happening by itself. You know, we're up here blabbing, we're having sittings, we're talking to you, all to help you remember mindfulness, right? And, but it starts to develop its own momentum, right? I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, know that, where it starts to get easier, where you're not having to remember it every moment. It starts to come in by itself. And we come to appreciate the mindfulness itself, the quality in the mind-heart that's present and aware, we come to appreciate that more. That more becomes, becomes much more fulfilling than trying to have a particular experience or, or confirming or describing ourselves by experience. Like I was saying when I was coming up here tonight, I suddenly remembered, oh yeah, right. Just the freshness of the present moment, just that. In that moment, there's... It doesn't occur to want something else. It doesn't occur to judge or evaluate. It's just this, but totally present and awake. It's like, oh, what's the problem? And you go, I'll tell you what the problem is. There's plenty of problems. Oh, problems feels like this. It's always available to come back again. This is the steadiness of mindfulness when it starts to get its momentum is the condition for insight wisdom to arise. From Sayada Upandita. When mindfulness is persistently and repeatedly activated, wisdom arises. There will be insight into the true nature of mind and body. It's not like if you want it or if you're good enough. It's just a law of nature. It's how it is. The more moments of clear, accurate recognition we recognize accurately, we're going to see how it is. We see how it is, wisdom arises. Try and stop it. We do try. We try really hard. We really try to get in the way and not see how things are. But that's why we set up this structure. So by hook or by crook, you're going to get mindful and see how things are. Oh, yeah, what was the problem? I've had so many moments like, oh, what's the problem? There's no problem. Five minutes later, five minutes later, big problem. Big problem. But a minute ago, there was no problem. Why can't I get back to no problem? It's like, no, there's a problem now. Okay, problem feels like this. you got to just land in where it is. Not an act of personal will. But, as Mingyur Rinpoche says, and I'll close with this, once we start our path of Dharma, every practice is an awareness practice. Every activity is an awareness practice an opportunity to practice awareness, every activity here. Broad, narrow, whatever it looks like, wholesome, unwholesome, as soon as we're aware, that experience brings us back into clear seeing. Nothing is excluded. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you all. And again, there's a half an hour walking period and uh, the last sitting together with some chanting, if you have the energy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.